Hello, I'm Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to or watching Radio Maine. Today I have with me in the studio, for the first time, artist Dietlin Vanderskaff. And it's wonderful to have her here because she was one of our earliest guests, and we did it remotely because of something, you know, this little global pandemic we were all going through. But today you're here, so yay! I know, it's really exciting to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming in today. My pleasure. We, we had so much to talk about the last time that I've, we could have done four or five different episodes on that. Um, but I'm kind of interested right now in, in all of the teaching and the workshops and all of the stuff that you're doing in addition to being an artist. So tell me about that evolution that continues to occur for you. Yeah, you know, I... I actually think of teaching as kind of a spiritual practice, too, in addition to sort of being another job that I do. Um, I remember years ago, I had this teacher at Maine College of Art, Dana Sawyer. He came and taught a class at USM, and he was talking about how, um, I think it was in Hindu or in Sanskrit, that the um, word for teacher, guru, at one of the translations is one who helps another to see. And I love that. And I've, I've really thought about that a lot with my teaching over the years, that that is the essence of teaching. I think that applies to art writ large as well. Like it instructs us in how to look at things. But when I'm teaching, I'm always trying to keep that at the center of my teaching. So yeah, I've taught for about 12 years. Um, it wasn't encaustic to begin with. I taught collage and took it into all different kinds of non-traditional venues as well. And then began teaching in Caustic about 10 years ago. And now I do quite a bit of traveling um, to teach as well. Yeah. So next year I'll be in the Netherlands teaching again, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, and this summer found me in Wisconsin, Vermont, Massachusetts. And then next month I'll be running my retreats in Kennebunkport. So, so tell me about that. That's a lot of being out and about and different places. And, and how did that happen for you? Well, it started slowly when I took over running the retreat in Kennebunkport, which would have been, I think, seven or eight years ago. Um, I started teaching in Caustic, and I really just taught it locally in the beginning at Maine College of Art through the Continuing Studies program. But then I started moving out from there and teaching in other places in New England. And then um, in 2018, I started working for RNF remotely. Um, and then I started getting different kinds of teaching opportunities. And so it's a juggling act because when you're gone for a week, like in July, I was hardly in my studio at all because of traveling for teaching. And um, But I really, I love it. I love the balance of being with students and then, you know, pulling back and being completely alone in my studio. And um, I, I also think that I actually learn as much from watching my students work as I impart knowledge to them, you know, too. Like one of my favorite stories is um, I was really struggling with this 36 by 36 inch painting years ago. And I was watching one of my students paint and she's not a traditional painter. She's actually um, more of a graphic designer. So she was approaching the material in a completely different way than how I work with it. And there was a looseness to it. And that's what I realized was missing from my work. So sometimes you get those sort of nonlinear um, learning opportunities, even as a teacher. So in, in helping others to see, you're also seeing in a different way yourself. Exactly. I mean, I think it's really important. As hard as it is to take time away from the studio, I think it is really important to step away from it 
and and have those other kinds of experiences. But also uh, teaching and going outside of Maine to teach especially helps to scratch the traveling itch for me too. I love seeing new new places. And so I get to do that a little bit. Like um, when I was at Wild Rice Retreat for two weeks in Wisconsin this summer, I mean, it was just so beautiful up there on Lake Superior. And, and then I was like, wow, this is like, and I'm getting paid to teach. <laughs> this is pretty awesome. So, so is a situation where you're te- you teach over in one place and somebody takes your workshop and they say, oh, you know what, I had this person in Deetland and she was a great teacher and I want her to come and teach where I am. And, and so how does that typically happen? You mean in terms of like, are the opportunities to teach coming to me or am I pursuing yeah, them? Yeah, how, how, how are these occurring? Yeah, so mostly in the beginning, it was me being more proactive, reaching out to different art centers and saying, um, you know, I'd like to teach here. I have a proposal. Um, sometime, maybe four or five years ago, that kind of flipped. And so, for example, Wild Rice, they they came to me and asked me if I would teach. I'd never heard of the, them before. So that was really fun. And, and also I have family up in that area, too. So it was great to be able to see some of them. Um, yeah, so it's it's been a mix, but I say over the last few years, it's been more people coming in and asking me and then me actually having to say no, which is not easy to sometimes. That's you know, drawing that boundary and saying, no, I, my schedule is full. Like next year is completely booked. Can't add anything more to it, even though I want to, want to keep sneaking things in. So how long has that taken you to get to the place where you moved from being the person going out there and saying, this is who I am and I can do this for you to the place where people know who you are and they come to you? Um, I, I think it was... You know, so it's been about 12 years and I, I'd say like the first five to seven was more me being more active and pursuing places. And then over the last five to six years, that that turnaround happened. Um, and I think some of it was just being really active on, you know, promoting classes and, you know, really pursuing those teaching opportunities and also being willing to take ones that were further away that didn't pay to travel to teach where I had to bring all the equipment because they didn't have anything like just doing the work, you know, to make it happen. So, but I really enjoyed doing it. Like, um, I taught at snow farm for a number of years. Are you familiar with that? It's in Williamsburg, mass. It's just a beautiful campus. Um, all different kinds of other kinds of, um, teaching opportunities happening there as well. So people doing glass blowing and jewelry making and flame throwing. I mean, it's just crazy stuff. So it's fun to walk around the campus. It's like, um, like adult art camp, you know? Well, I asked this question because I, I know that being entrepreneurial and, and kind of designing your own life, it requires uh, a different set of, um, skills, a little bit probably more faith in the process, and certainly a lot of hard work. And many people who go into kind of go on an entrepreneurial journey, after a couple, three years, they'll say, no, I don't want to do this anymore. It's not working. But what you're saying, it, you know, it's it's a good solid five to seven years it took you before things actually kind of started to catch and you were able to move more in the direction that you wanted to go in. And I also think that I didn't have a very strong vision when I started. So when I first started teaching and I was teaching collage, I was just happy to be teaching it. And and I loved going in. You know, I worked in like vet centers and I worked with immigrant and refugee populations and with adult learners. And I just really enjoyed that process of teaching and working with people. Um, So I think there was one point where I started to get a little bit more ambitious about what I wanted to do, but it wasn't like I had this vision that I was moving toward. 
Um, so it really kind of evolved organically. And um, I think that helps, you know, because, but then the entrepreneurial piece of it, that's a lot of work. You know, there's the business aspect. I, I used to teach professional development for artists too for a while, and I still kind of weave it into some of my classes where it's appropriate because not everybody wants to be a professional artist. Some people just want to be creative and enjoy that experience um, in a workshop setting. But I, I think that um, if you do want to be a professional artist, you do, you spend, I think it's almost like 50% of your time in the professional piece of it, the photographing of the work and the promoting of it and the adding it to your website and the connecting with the gallery or galleries and, you know, returning emails and it, it's work, you know, um, writing your artist statement and rewriting it and being willing to say yes to all those other opportunities that come along with it. Um, but I enjoy those things. So it's, it just sort of came naturally to me. I think people are often surprised to hear the amount of um, work that goes into the business side mm-hmm. of of selling one's pieces. I think it's it's we uh, many people have this interesting kind of probably long laid to rest idea of the starving artist in a garret just kind of working away at the palette on the easel. And and that's actually not really the way that it occurs. If you want to put your things out into the world, you have to put it put these things in front of people. Yeah, I think that some well, I think that some people think that too, there's a kind of purity if you are just sort of removed yourself from the the more commercial aspects of selling your work. Um But maybe because I didn't go to art school and I didn't walk that traditional path and I came from a different, you know, I'd worked in lots of different kinds of careers and from the bottom up and saw what it took to sort of make something and to connect with people and to help them appreciate and understand what your work was about. Um, I never had that. But I also never had a goal of being a full-time artist, like supporting myself with selling my work. So I've always had a 40-hour work, you know, week outside of painting. Um, Four years ago, when I started working for RNF, I was able to scale that back to 30 hours a week. But then teaching sometimes takes away from painting too. So I've painted for the last 12 years, just sometimes it was one day a week. If I was lucky, it was two. Sometimes in the winter, it's three, but it's still a seven day work week. (laughs) Um, I think I'm lucky I have a lot of energy. Um, for for doing all those things too, so that helps. And I think that's that's another kind of interesting thing that many people um, believe to be true. That okay, I'm just gonna I'm gonna throw away my day job and I'm gonna follow my passion and I'm gonna do this thing full time. And um, in reality, in talking to a lot of different people. I, it, it, that's not the way that it typically occurs. I mean, very few people are actually able to just commit to being in their studio, you know, 80 hours a week doing nothing else. Sure. And I think that there's probably a point where you, I mean, if you have somebody else who helps support you or that maybe you could walk that pathway. Um, I think for me, I wouldn't want to be in my studio full time because like with teaching, just being away from my studio, that's where a lot of that nonlinear thinking comes in or ideas come in where that feeds my practice as much as anything else. So even though one way of thinking of it is this is taking me away from painting, another way is this is also refilling the well. So when I go back to the studio, 
I have these new ideas or I have this new energy or enthusiasm for it. I've always felt so grateful for all the time in my studio, but it isn't a place where I wanted to be full time, you know, five or six days a week. Um, so I think that I've never had that idea of like, I'm going to just be in there all the time. And plus I wouldn't want to put that pressure on my work. I always wanted to be able to make the kind of work that I wanted to do. So I figured if I made, you know, most of my income in another fashion, then the painting was free to do what it wanted to do or be. I, I actually really like that. I think that that, that idea that, you know, you create something in it and it has to, has to immediately be successful that is extremely stressful. It's a lot of pressure. And pressure. then it, if, if it's not, then I wonder how much self-doubt it creates. Like, well, maybe it's just not good enough and maybe I didn't do it the right way. And, and, and it seems like that would be very paralyzing for a kind of a creative pursuit. Totally. And I also think that that just, that can happen anyway. I mean, you can be, I'm pretty confident and feel, you know, about myself and my work. And yet, even this past winter, I went through a little hard period of pretty intense self-doubt. Um, and, you know, I think too, sometimes when you're shifting between bodies of work, like I've got a new body that I want to start working on uh, there, when you're trying out that new work or you're working with a new color palette or a new series of marks or whatever it is that you want to do, that's a little bit different. Often you have to go through a period where you make work that actually isn't any good for a while. And that can be a really tough thing to navigate for anyone, I think, but especially for artists, because so often our work is, a, we do feel like it's a direct reflection of ourselves. So um, I don't remember if I told this story the last time we talked, I don't think I did, but uh, one of the times I was teaching, it was a few years ago, it was during the pandemic and it was during the retreat that I run in Kennebunkport. So I moved my teaching table out into this larger sort of outdoor space where I was um, do doing a demo. And um, at the end of the demo, when the students are going back in to start doing their own work, one of the students kind of tentatively hung out at my table and, and she leaned forward and she said, um, you know, I have to share something with you. She said, when you were doing that demo, it didn't look very good. Like, you know, and she's like, and there was this point where, and then all of a sudden you brought it together and it looked great. And she said, it, I realized in watching you that I'm judging my work way too quickly. So I'm expecting it to come out and be a certain way. And if it doesn't look that way, I kind of ruin it or I get discouraged or frustrated. And so that in turn made me reflect that one of the um, ways I think I've built more grit in my practice is knowing that there's going to be sort of an ugly stage or a chaotic stage or that I have to let things get a little bit more wild or a little bit more uncomfortable or jagged or um, unbalanced and disordered in my work, which isn't the most comfortable place for me before I pull something back together on the surface. And I didn't even really know I was doing that, but I think in the beginning, I was probably closer to her where I wanted my work to look good right away. And I think over time, I've realized, no, that's just, it has to go through a lot of stages. Like our awkward teenage, I don't know if you ever went through an awkward teenage stage. Are you kidding but, me? Of course. Oh, yeah. There's some pictures out there that make exactly. me really glad I grew up before. Yeah, before the internet. Right. So you could kind of put them in a drawer and oh, nobody yes. will ever know. Exactly. Yes, I feel exactly. exactly the same way. There's a lot of stages of that with my paintings in my studio, but I can just turn them around and, you know, I have patience that I'll be able to do something with them one day. So 
it's interesting that you kind of simultaneously had had this revelation that you needed to go through the the dirtiness and the messiness and the uncomfortability but also you're describing a period of self-doubt last mm, winter mm-hmm. so you kind of intellectually understood that you needed to go through this but still going through it didn't feel great it sounds yeah. like oh it and it and it's also sometimes can be prolonged i mean it can be like you have a bad day or you can have a bad week or you can feel like it's kind of going on for months and you can be your own worst critic of your work you know that it's i think I read this, I think it's in the book Art and Fear. I don't know if you've ever read that book. It's kind of a classic, awesome book about art and being an artist. And one of the things that, um, I think there's two authors that co-authored it. And one of the things that the book says that always stayed with me is that um, vision is always ahead of execution. And so I think if if we think from that perspective that like as an artist, my idea for what I want to create is often... And at at all levels, like as a new student, especially I think for um, students that come in and take my classes that are already very skilled or proficient at photography or jewelry making or graphic design or printmaking, and they come in and they're working with this new medium and they're not able to make, a lot of them are really hard on themselves. So, um, and it's the same for me. It's the same for, I think all of us that we have maybe a, a vision that's just ever so slightly ahead of where we're actually at. And so sometimes we can be fine with that. And then other times that can be, I think, a little bit more like a source of tension or challenge. Um, so yeah, I think it is a tough thing to go through, but I would go home at the end of the day. I remember going through this, it was probably like three or four months. And um, I would talk to my partner and she would say, how'd it go? Or, you know, how was, how was your day? And I say, oh, I don't want to talk about it. It was really frustrating. You know, I was there for seven or eight hours and I don't feel like anything. She's just like, just go and put in your hours. Just go put in your hours. You know, just really simple. It's like the best piece. It's like my little mantra now. Just put in your hours, you know. And sometimes it's looking with fresh eyes at the same work as seeing it a little differently and realizing, no, I was just being really critical and actually, this isn't that bad. Or there's something good in it. There's something that I can work with here. Well, with all of that in mind, I want you to describe this piece that we have with us in the yeah in the studio today. So this um, piece is one of a very... I do a lot of this kind of variation of work. So where there's a lot of the same kind of mark making, um, sort of rounded shapes and um, repeated hatch marks, and the gold leaf is in there as well. So I've been working with this sort of design and its own evolution for about five or six years. It started with a painting that I did um, as a commission for someone I went to graduate school with. And she'd given me real free license to do sort of what I wanted after we had looked at a few pieces that she really liked. Um, and so this is a variation on that that original piece, which was called The Summoning World, and um, which is from, it's a line from an essay by Mary Oliver, which is, it's a beautiful essay. It's from Upstream, if, if anyone's interested. Um, what I'm trying to do with this work and all of its different iterations is to convey a sort of felt sense of being in the world, being in the both, it could be an urban landscape or it could be the natural world. There's things dissolving and emerging. Um, there's something that could be referenced to birds, windows, squares. You have loose spaces, you have open spaces. It's not anything specific because it's more about creating a felt sense of something in the person who's looking at it that they might feel expansive, calmed, 
um, uplifted, um, you know, sort of steeped in beauty. Um, that's probably, is that, does that help explain it a little bit? Um, of the repeated marks that are in the work, this is something I've been working with for almost 10 years. They evolve um, and they are, for me, a kind of language, but they can also become just a pattern in the landscape very easily as well. Um, they can signify movement too within the piece. They're sort of an organizing principle as well as sort of a signature of my work. I'm enjoying hearing you talk about this because, as you know, I have one of your pieces in, in my home, and I think I'm going to go back and now I'm going to look at these <laughs> these marks and I'm going to see what the language is that she's talking about. And and I, I often will walk past the piece, you know, I walk past it, you know, multiple times a day, but then every so often the light will hit the gold leaf, and then I actually stop and look at it. And I do think that is the interesting thing about about your work in particular, but about probably art just overall, is that you actually do have the opportunity to look at it with fresh eyes. And particularly as you're describing this and, and you're kind of putting a little different context around it, 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 it enables things to emerge in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for me, for the art that I find that I want to have in my home, I want it to be work that I want to continue to engage with. I never get bored of looking at, you know, I could look at it again and again and again and kind of get lost in it, whether it's representational or abstract. You'll also notice in this particular piece, there's a lot of squares. I tend toward that. And I think it's it's like a, it's a kind of a form of order in the work for me too, you know? I have to fight that tendency. I mean, probably if I could just let it, if I let it rip, the whole thing would be squares because I love to have everything be really neat and tidy and sort of, you know, mise en place or however you say that. But, um, but I also want some looseness in the work. And I think that's actually where my work is going is even dissolving more and more of those boundaries around those squares. Um, you know, and it's interesting when I traveled to the Netherlands a few years ago to teach, I noticed that every, that you know, like their yards, people's yards were very tidy and neat and ordered too. And my family being Dutch on my father's side, I thought, oh, I wonder if there's a little bit of that in there, you know, and that's what's showing up in the work too. But um, yeah, I love to organize things in little squares too. So you'll see that the squares of gold and the squares of um, the sections that are sort of marked off and carved in the work as well. I mean that des that that description is it provides such an interesting kind of tension to your personality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's very true. Yeah, I can I love things to be really ordered and organized, but then I know that's not how life shows up all the time, and we have to let there be more looseness. That's why there's a few paintings that will be in um, my October show that are a little bit more organic, more flowing. They have some more rounded shapes in them. There's more looseness. And I think that's the direction I'm going in. Um, I have I want to do a really big version of one of the pond paintings. I can sort of feel it, and I'm just waiting until I have that time in my studio to go there. Well, one of the things I'm noticing about this piece for me is um, the lines that are more towards your side. They almost look like 
like pilings in, mm-hmm. and I think of Lake Champlain and running along the waterfront and the pilings that emerge, especially in the winter time, and even the fact that they're set upon this the, the blues of what could be water. And that may not be your intention, but that's also the interesting thing for me about art is particularly in the abstract, you're able to look at something and bring your own context to it as well. Absolutely. And though, I mean, that could be there for sure. You know, for me, it's also grasses. I love tall, you know, grasses. Um, Sort of, I remember seeing some of these photographs years ago. It was a Korean photographer out in the Bay Area that had done just these incredible black and white photographs of, um, I think they were... um, like from lily pads that were coming up out of the water or anyway, they were just the the lines themselves were just so beautiful. And so I find line to just be something I can lose myself in, you know? Um, I don't know if I told you this story the last time we talked too, but when I taught at Haystack years ago, um, I had seen when I was in Stonington, a, a big, beautiful piece of art that I love that had just horizontal lines going across it. Um, it was almost like complexity, I think. And I just realized how much I loved line, you know, just how soothing it was. And when I was teaching, it turned out that the gentleman who made that piece was the father of one of my students. And he was also, um, he also worked for Haystack too, which I didn't know. Um, so that was kind of a fun little story. So it shouldn't really be that surprising, given that you like things to be neat and ordered and lined up, that when you're going through the messy stage, that it doesn't feel great. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's it's challenging, you know, and encaustic is messy. It's almost impossible to keep, you know, there was a period where my studio was really tidy. And then as I started working larger, things got messier. Wax gets on the table, it gets on the floor, it gets on my heat gun, (laughs) it gets under my nails. And I don't like that part of it. So I have to keep stopping and cleaning periodically too, and reorganizing everything in the studio. But it's just part of the process, you know, and it's probably good for me to be uncomfortable sometimes in my studio and then have to bring it back to a place of comfort. So one of the things that I noticed about this piece um, was a different color. And it was something that you and I discussed very briefly before we started talking on air. Um, You do have a lot of blue in your work. And Mm. I know that um, I believe there was a famous artist that was known for his blue phase. So I think it was Picasso. I yeah. think I think you're right. So I'm I'm now I've, I'm now conflating you with Picasso. Oh, so well. <laughs> yeah. So you're welcome. And um, and now it sounds like maybe you're emerging from your blue phase and you're moving into a different phase. I think so. I was talking to Nikki at the gallery the other day when I was dropping off a painting and I said I just want to paint with like earth tones and, you know, warmer colors too. Um, This is a comfort zone for me to work with blues. I love them. They're very soothing. They feel like me, but I've been wanting to sneak in some other things. So I've started to do it a little bit over the past year. So yeah, the color that you're bringing a little bit of soft pink in there or some sepia, uh, different kinds of, you know, um, more transparent greens, Um, just bringing in some of those other, even noticing that, like, for example, the more muddy colors that are in this particular painting are part of what make the prettier colors work. If it was all just pretty colors, 
the, the more sort of lighter pastel colors, it would be one thing. But when you add in those little sections of um, kind of like green gray, that's what makes the rest of it sing for me. It makes the other colors prettier, makes them richer. Um, it shows off their saturation as well. It's always interesting to me that in looking at a piece and looking at a color, I have a, a, just a visceral response to it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I was telling you earlier, there's a, there's a teal on this piece that for me is just, it's just always, it's just, a, it's always been there. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's the color. It's one of my kind of foundational life colors. And I can't really explain to you why, mm-hmm. but it just speaks to me in a way. And it's interesting that I'm, I'm certain that many other people feel this way as well, and that we're all kind of walking around in this world of colors and these things that kind of grab us and that we resonate with. And it creates this whole other level of living that we have the ability to connect to. Yeah, I think that's one of the wonderful aspects of owning original art, having it in your home and getting to engage with it. Um, but what's funny is that my color, the way that teal is for you, would be gr- like light gray. <laughs> I have, I remember shopping recently and I came home and everything I bought was light gray. I was like, Deetlin, you have to buy something with color in it at some point, you know? But I just love light gray. Well, my walls are light gray at home, and but nobody wants light gray paintings all the time. So you have to work with some color. Yeah, I think everybody has that something, the colors, there's certain colors that just, you know, they have different effects on us, you know, they can drive the aesthetic of your work too. Um, Like red, you'll almost never see me work with red or even orange for some reason, but I want to work with a little bit of orange. So who knows, maybe that will show up in something in the coming year. Especially if you're talking about working with warmer tones. Exactly. It may be that this is part of kind of your brain's longer term strategy. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll sneak it in just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and as I talk about teal, I mean, for me also, I mean, red is a great, it's such a great example of a stage in my life I remember going through where I, I, I ju- it was just something that I, I needed to have. I mm. needed to, I needed to wear my red coat. I mean, I needed to kind of make this statement to the world and probably more to myself than to the world that there's this this other element, there's this something that maybe hadn't um, been emerging and needed to emerge at that time. So I, I think it's also interesting that over the course of one's life that you can be like, oh, today is actually an orange day or, you know, I'm going into my yellow phase, yeah. that colors really do mean a lot to us. Yeah. I, when I went through my yoga teacher training, the 200-hour training um, when I was 40, before that, I only really worked with black and white and like um, just the clear medium and some objects, maybe a little tiny bit of um, like green gold might be in there or something, but it was pretty, it was pretty much black and white. But when I went through that, and I also, I noticed one time when I was teaching in the group, there were about 60 students in my pod and um and I'm looking around and everyone has these cool yoga clothes on and everything I own is like gray or black and white. And I was like, I'm going to go down and buy the wildest yoga pants I can find in the store. I need something with pink in it or something that just isn't gray, you know? It was a challenge, but I did find a really fun pair of of yoga pants, which I hardly ever wear, but still I own them. And it was after I came back from that teacher training that I started working with more color in my paintings. And that's when the gold came in as well, too. So I think those things were all tied together with that desire to have 
more um, color and, and just the beauty that you get from bringing together all these different kinds of hues and the shades and the tints that are in the work. You're also describing something that I think is very real, and that is that the group that you're with in, at any given time in your life or the culture that you're a part of, there, there's almost a palette that's associated with, with that. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes pulling yourself out and being willing to be the orange mm-hmm. or being willing to resonate with a new group, yeah. I mean, that actually um, can be both exciting and a little scary. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And then I think that like, you know, as artists, we also get kind of um, defined by the color palette that we work with, too, so that people are they're drawn to our work because they're really drawn to those colors. They even think of them. I've heard people say, oh, these are your colors, too. You know, like they associate colors with me as an artist, too. Um, And these do feel like they reflect me, even, you know, wearing grays and blacks. They're very grounded colors and you know, I realized we, especially going through that yoga teacher training, it was like, you try out different kinds of parts of yourself. You're like, admire that person who teaches from a really energetic place or who smiles the whole time or whatever. And then I realized that's not how I teach. I like the kind of slow, deep, thoughtful, calming process. It's the same thing with my artwork. It's just, it's an extension of who I am. Um, so the merging into new colors will have to happen gradually, I think. (laughs) It's not like you'll see a big orange painting next year, but you'll see some orange maybe in some work. Well, I'm really looking forward to it now. I mean, it's so intriguing. I I have to kind of see where the vision eventually takes us because, I mean, I I do agree with you that blue is a, that it is something. I mean, obviously my piece in my house is blue, but the interesting thing is when I talk to you, I don't necessarily think blue. Mm-hmm. I can't really tell you exactly what color it is that I, I feel, and I certainly wouldn't want to label you with a color that yeah. <laughs> doesn't yeah. work for your life, but <laughs> but I but it isn't necessarily blue. Yeah. So it'll be I'll really be fascinated to see where that kind of goes next. Yeah, yeah, that that will be interesting. Yeah, the piece that you have is definitely of akin to this this whole series. It's called Drama and it's like um it's a dream. It's about what, what that dreamlike state is and that space between waking and sleeping. And I think a lot of my landscapes, um, whether they are urban landscapes or more about the natural world, they have that kind of um, aspect. It's sort of like um, dreamlike and soft and things are fading and emerging. Like in this piece too, there's a lot of reference to... Um, the landscape, if you're in an airplane and you're looking down and you're seeing how, you know, if you, especially if you're flying over fields and farming areas, you see these sort of ordered areas. Um, I think yours is even has more white in it too. There's a lot of like white expansive space in that piece. Do you think that this piece as a result of all of your traveling and all the time spent in airplanes yeah, I'm sure. has been influenced in any way? Oh, I love that. There, like, I'm definitely that person that on the airplane just can't get enough pictures of clouds and, and fields. And of course, they don't look as good on my phone because, you know, as they do looking out the window of the airplane. But I'm endlessly fascinated when you are above the earth looking down um, at the way that we've carved out this space and, um, and the different colors that emerge from that, um, from rivers and roads and, um, and fields and trees and houses too, even the the way we've organized our architecture. Um, yeah. 
Well, I'm always, most recently when I'm watching shows on Netflix or, or whatever, the thing I really enjoy um, is seeing the, the drone sequences, you know, mm-hmm. where they're, I love sh- that they're showing the, you know, there's the cars that are driving along the winding snowy roads with yeah. the trees that are coming up. And, mm-hmm. and it, it's just this sense that, I mean, we really have the ability now to look at things from so many different angles that maybe we didn't have quite as much access to as um, before. Yeah, I agree. I know when I do my Peloton, I love, I just do the scenic rides and I turn the music off because I just love kind of floating through, you know, Scotland on my bicycle. Um, So yeah, I feel, I feel that same way. There's a um, Instagram site that I follow um, called, I think it's the Daily Overview or just maybe over here. I don't know if you've seen it, but they do a lot of uh, pictures of the earth, satellite pictures of different parts of the earth and also show how they've changed over time and then tell you what you're looking at. Um, and even ones that are actually very, very sad, what, what we're looking at can be incredibly beautiful in a weird way too, when viewed from a great distance. So, yeah. Well, I'll have to look it up. Yeah. That's cool. So I know that people um, will of course, want to buy your art because, I mean, clearly we did at our house. And I know they can go to the Portland Art Gallery for that. But for people who are interested in learning about the workshops that you give or the teaching that you do, how would they access or how would they find you? Yeah, so it's all on my website. If you go to Dietland Vanderscaff, Dietland has no A in it, Dietland with two eyes, uh, Vanderscaff.com, there's a teaching tab right on there where you can find out about workshops. Um, I have, I think pretty much everything for next year is listed. There's a few things that haven't, registration hasn't opened. Um, I'm really excited because uh, Emma, who works at the gallery is going to be one of my work study assistants next year for two of my workshops. So she'll be with me when I teach at Penland. And she's also going to come down to Kennebunkport with me next September for the last session of my retreat. So I'm going to be, this next year will be my last time running it. Oh boy. Yeah. That's, that'll be, you'll do the grand finale. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Got a year to plan that. Good. And you are very fortunate to work with Emma. Yes, we all are. Yes, we all are. We all are. (laughs) Anybody who's watched the show has met Emma. So obviously I don't have to tell you, but yes, it's a great group of people. I think seriously, everybody who's associated with Portland Art Gallery is is fabulous. I love going in to deliver a painting because I'll just end up talking to Nikki or, you know, just any one of the people working there. It's just, it's always a treat. I feel the same way. It's it's a wonderful thing to be a part of. And um, it's actually a wonderful thing to ask, spend time with you today because it's I, I kind of I think of the time that you and I taught together and the, the artist um, gathering. But I also think of the time where you were the you were just the head on the other side of the camera <laughs> in one of our early podcasts, which had its own kind of sense of fun and hope in the midst of this weirdness that the world has been over the last three years. So, so I appreciate your willingness to step toward that uncertainty at that point, but I really appreciate your kind of coming back into the circle and being present with me here today. Thanks, Lisa. It's, it's a pleasure. Always wonderful. I've been speaking with artist Dietland Vanderskaff, and you may go to the Portland Art Gallery to see her wonderful work or go to her website to learn more about her teaching. Um, I really do encourage you to kind of, I want you to see where her vision um, is leading her. It'll be interesting to see how things emerge. So perhaps show up at the October show and uh, see what you think. 
And um, I appreciate your joining us here today. I'm Dr. Lisa Belisle. This has been Radio Maine. Thank you, Dylan. <laughs>